Yeah, sorry. You can remain standing for the scripture reading. <laughs> Hi, I'm Ann Kurtz, and I'm going to be reading Ephesians 5, 1 through 21. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Make the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God and the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Anne. Uh, and I wanted to begin this morning. I was thinking back over a time in my life. I was my seventh grade year, so I was uh, squarely in the middle of uh, middle school, and I experienced a deep relational wounding at the hand of a couple of guys that I had been hanging out with. Uh, these two particular guys, we'd known one another since elementary school, and uh, here now in seventh grade, we played basketball together most days at recess, and then we sat together every day at lunch. But as the fall semester wore on, they started to be increasingly mean and unkind to me, which was hard, uh, and I was confused because I thought we were good friends. And so one day, I, I mustered up the courage to go to them and say something like, guys, what happened? Like, something feels different. You've started to be so mean to me. What's going on? Their response, yeah, you're not wrong. We've just sort of been thinking and talking that maybe we mostly shouldn't be friends anymore. You can still play basketball with us at recess because we need you for the game, but you should probably find somewhere different to sit at lunch. Like, ouch, right? Like, deep relational wounding. I didn't know what it felt like to get friend dumped, but there it was. Uh, and that story bounces back, actually. Both of those guys later came back and apologized to me. We actually were able to rekindle our friendship, and that carried all the way through high school, but there's no way around it, right? In that moment of relational pain and rejection, I was deeply, deeply hurt, deeply hurt. 
And I don't know everything that was going on in the lives and hearts of the two guys who hurt me so badly in that moment, but I have to wonder. I mean, you've heard the cliche, right? Hurt people hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. That's a cliche, but it has such a strong ring of truth to it. People who are hurting often operate out of that hurt in a way that then continues the hurt, that then hurts others. This is a tragic doom loop that I think we've all been caught in at some point in our lives. Right? You, can, you can think of a story like what I just told, can't you? And that just, the fact that we know this experience so well leads me to wondering about what if the opposite was true? Hurt people hurt people, but what if loved people love people? What if loved people love people? Well, according to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5, the opposite is true, or at least the opposite should be true. Loved people love people. And this is my summary statement of Paul's thesis for Ephesians chapter 5. In the first half, uh, verses 1 through 21, which Ann just read for us a minute ago. That's our passage for this morning. And I think in these verses, Paul argues that those who know they are deeply loved are then freed to love others in ways that were previously unimaginable. I think he starts with this right at the top of this passage. Verse 1, look back at that verse. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. We are God's beloved children, Paul reminds the church in Ephesus and reminds us. So we ought to imitate Him. We ought to operate out of our belovedness and move towards loving others. You know, when Ashley and I are operating from a position of deep love and connection toward one another, I find that, what am I? I'm a better father to Bevan, Owen, and Ethan, right? I'm more loving towards Bevan, Owen, and Ethan. When Ashley and I are operating in a place of love and connection, it flows toward our children. Why is that? It's because loved people love people. Loved people love people. And friends, Paul says here, we are loved by God. We are God's beloved children, which is incredible and Paul doesn't stop there. He actually continues. He layers in some more important teaching as we continue into the next verse. So follow along with him. Verse 1, therefore be imitators of God since we are his beloved children in verse 2 and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Christ, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now here's where things get a little bit trickier. Follow along with this with me. Because you see, our definition of love, how we define love, doesn't always perfectly match God's definition of love. Importantly, the Apostle Paul continues to define what God's love means and looks like. And when we talk about God's love, what is it? Well, it's anchored in Christ. God's definition of love is Jesus. And when Jesus loved, Jesus sacrificed. Jesus took second. Jesus gave himself up. Jesus denied himself. Is that what we do? Is that how we, is that how our cultural moment defines and approaches love? I'm not so sure. In fact, I think where Paul goes next in this passage, in verses 3 and following, confronts how we too often approach love in our cultural moment. I think in this passage, the Apostle Paul exposes how thin and even harmful our different definition of love can be, and I think he calls us to something that is higher 
and holier. I think he calls us to something that is more like the sacrificial, radical, generous love of Jesus. And I think he does this first starting in verse 3 by inviting us to examine whether or not we allow our desires, our desires to warp what we call love. So here's how I would sum up Paul on this point in the following few verses. Loved people love people more than their desires. Loved people love people more than their desires. And let's zero in on this word desires here for a moment. Have you ever noticed that you have conflicting desires within yourself? Conflicting desires? I desire this, which would take me down pathway number one, but huh, wait a second. Curiously, I also desire that, which would take me down pathway number two. Conflicting desires. Here's a simple example from Ashley and I's parenting life with our kiddos. My sons, and this is absolutely true, desire, they have a desire to be great, loving brothers to one another. It's one of the joys of my life that I get to observe that in their lives as a genuine desire that they have. And yet, they also desire to hit one another when they get into a fight. Is there an amen in the room? (laughs) Right? Do you see what I mean? Conflicting desires. I mean, maybe you have an example from your own life that you're thinking about right now. You're like, oh my goodness, yes, I do possess these conflicting desires. This takes me down pathway number one. This takes me down pathway number two. They're in direct conflict with one another. And notice something else with me. Often within this realm of conflicting desires, the conflict happens between what I would call a deep desire, a deep desire. Okay, let's start with that. And again, one of the joys of my life is when I look at Bevan, Owen, and Ethan, I see a really deep desire for them to love one another and be great sacrificial brothers to one another. That that seems to, to well up from this place that is deep inside of them, deep inside their bones, that desire wells up, right? So they have a deep desire... And then, and then they have this other desire, right, that I've already mentioned. And a lot of times that desire comes across as a, not a deep desire, but a strong desire. So their desire to hit one another, it's not deep within them. It's, it's sort of, it lives on the surface, it's shallow, but in the moment that they feel it, they feel it with what? With an intense strength. And so they, and then me in my own life in different ways, I often give in to the strong desire that I feel in the moment that conflicts with the deep desire. Do you see? I want to go down pathway number one with the deep desire, but I give in to the strong momentary desire that conflicts and it leads me down a different path. Do you see? Conflicting desires. The battle between a deep desire and a strong desire. And here's where this ties back into Ephesians chapter 5. In our cultural moment, and I wonder if you've noticed this with me, I've noticed that we are very often ruled by our strong momentary desires rather than by our deep desires. We are ruled by our strong momentary desires rather than our deep desires. We're pretty good, I've noticed, at giving in to whatever it is that we desire most strongly in the moment, aren't we? And friends, I think this is especially true when it comes to sex. I think this is especially true when it comes to sex. And in Ephesians chapter 5, God meets our strong desire for sex with some strong words of warning. So with all of that context, let's now look at what I'm talking about in the Apostle Paul. 
Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 6. Follow back along with me. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints, which just means all those who are following Jesus. Verse 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. I know you feel with me the strong warning in those words. I know you feel that with me. And don't forget that the Apostle Paul moves into these verses of warning directly following and directly out of his call to the church in Ephesus to imitate God's sacrificial and generous love most perfectly pictured in Jesus. Love is sacrifice. Love is generous. Love is the way of Jesus. That's Ephesians 5 verses 1 and 2. And then immediately Paul pivots to a topic that we often conflate with love, sex. And he delivers some strong words of warning, some strong teaching about it. Because friends, the truth is that the way we often approach sex, again, thinking that it is a one-to-one equivalent and we can conflate it with love, the way we often approach sex is not sacrificial. It's not generous. It's not the way of Jesus. No, I've observed that the way we approach sex is often far more selfish Far more what's in it for me. Far more what will I get out of it. And what we have to see is that when we approach sex that way, when sex approached that way invades a community, it destroys that community. It lays waste to it. Sex approached in that manner, our sexual desires approached in that manner, will tear down a community instead of building it up. And that is what the book of Ephesians is about. The book of Ephesians is about how God wants to build up a new and better and different kind of community. He's tearing down the hostile dividing walls. He is weaving us together into one new family, one new humanity. He is building us back into a dwelling place for His Spirit, His holy temple. He is doing this, and when we approach sex in this way, it tears down the work that God is doing. He wants to build back up a community where loved people love people, but sexual immorality stands opposed to and tears down God's better building project, which I don't even have to tell you, right? That's a big deal. Anything that would go against and tear down God's better building project is something that we need to approach with great care and concern and seriousness which means that it seems important to specifically understand what Paul is talking about in these verses. So let's start with the phrase at the beginning of verse 3, sexual immorality. Uh, This phrase here in the original language is porneia, porneia, which probably sounds familiar. Porneia is a broad term that refers to all sexual sin, all sexual activity outside of a biblically defined marriage, which is between a man and a woman for life. So porneia includes pornography and lust, it includes hooking up, it includes sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or fiancé, porneia includes adultery, and porneia includes same-sex sexual behavior. The Bible names all of these behaviors as being outside of God's design 
which means that they are sin, and sin is always the opposite of love. Sin is always the opposite of love. Engaging our desire for sex in these ways may feel like love, but it's not. It's not. And I think we have to reckon with the fact that our culture has normalized many of these behaviors, called them good. I mean, I hear it right now in my head, right? And maybe you do too. Love is love, right? And listen, I know, I know how tough it is for you to hear this right now. Believe me, it is tough for me to say it and tough for me to hear it. I feel the, the feeling in the room right now. I do. And I start to wonder, maybe the Bible is just out of date? Maybe our culture has arrived and finally figured it out? But then I take a beat. And I look around at our modern moment. And friends, I see so much sexual abuse and sexual heartache. I see so much exploitation. I see so many broken promises. And then... I start to realize just how much of our so-called sexual revolution has overpromised and underdelivered. Overpromised and underdelivered. I think if we're honest, what we will admit is that we too, our modern cultural moment is a mess when it comes to sex. A mess when it comes to sex. You know, one of the most interesting parts of working with college students the last three years was engaging them on this conversation. Uh, many of the students at Sterling College, which is a Christian college, were not followers of Jesus, which presented an incredible opportunity for me to, to weave into their life in a unique way and try to, the best I could, point them to Jesus. And many students, frankly, both followers of Jesus and not, were having sex outside of marriage. And there were several times where I got to process with these students after they experienced the over-promised and under-delivered phenomenon that is so prevalent in this arena. I saw realization watch over them as they slowly realized that maybe, just maybe, 21st century Americans do not have this completely figured out. We have not completely arrived here. And here's another aspect that we have to keep in mind this morning. The Roman Empire which was the cultural moment that Paul was addressing when he wrote to the Ephesians. That cultural moment was, if you can imagine this, even more free sex than we are. Even more free sex. Did you know that? Pedophilia was acceptable, as well as same-sex sexual behavior, prostitution, even rape in certain instances. If you were a man in the Roman Empire, especially if you had money, it was expected that you'd have concubines, slaves, prostitutes, or even engage in pedophilia. Soldiers away at war would often take advantage of one another and the communities they found themselves in. All of this and more was acceptable sexual behavior for first century men. It was normalized. It was called good. Now, if you were a woman, well, hold up a second. You, you couldn't engage in any of these things. So do you see then what Paul is doing? He is holding Christian men to the same standard as Christian women, which was unthinkable in his cultural moment. Sometimes we wrongly think that the Apostle Paul was down on women, but Ephesians 5 actually reveals the opposite because Paul had the nerve to hold men and women accountable to the same sexual standards. Larry Hurtado, in his book, Destroyer of the Gods, talked to, talks about this at length. 
He talks about how the Bible's sexual ethic was radically countercultural, not just today. That's why we feel it in the room, right? Because this is countercultural. But it's not just countercultural today. In the 21st century, the Christians and, and the Apostle Paul's, the Bible's sexual ethic was radically countercultural back then. He writes, Paul labels these behaviors as sinful and completely off limits for believers. And in doing so, he asserted and reflected a stance that was diametrically opposed to the prevailing attitudes of the time. And he intended to distinguish sharply what should be the sexual behavior of believers, particularly males. Friends, the truth is that Paul treats men and equally, men and women equally when it comes to sexual ethics, confronting and offending his cultural moment. So it might be tempting for us to just say, oh, the Bible is old-fashioned in its sexual ethic. But if you say that, then what it means is you actually haven't gone far enough back in history. We think that we're progressive in our view of sex. We think we've shed all of these old-fashioned ideals, but it's not true. We've actually regressed back 2,000 years to a brutal culture that permitted a sexual free-for-all, including gross exploitation of women and children. Do you see this? Our culture is going backward to a primitive sex ethic, not forward to a futuristic one. And it's interesting to me because one thing that I'm noticing is that this point is starting to be made by folks other than pastors. And this point is starting to be made in places other than churches, like in the Washington Post, for instance. Back in the spring, that... uh, uh, publication ran a lengthy op-ed by a woman named Christine Emba called Consent Was Never Enough. We Need a New Sexual Ethic. It's a fascinating article, and here's part of it that I found particularly relevant to our conversation this morning. Even when it goes well, sex is complicated. It involves our bodies, minds, and emotions, our connections to each other, and our deepest selves. Despite the many and popular arguments that it's only a physical act, it is clear to almost anyone who has had it that sex has vast consequences, some of which can last long after an encounter ends. Over the past several decades, our society has come to believe that consent as a legal standard and a moral requirement could somehow make our most unruly activity more manageable. But it was never going to be that easy. And it isn't that easy, is it? Maybe you feel that with me. Or maybe you've lived that, just as I've lived that. Is that not true? Like we all this morning, part of what's so hard about this in this moment is that each one of us brings in our own story of sexual brokenness to this place. I feel that with you and it's why I'm trying to tread so lightly. The reality is that this is complicated and messy and it has a huge impact on the life of the community, which is why the Apostle Paul addresses it and it's why we're not skipping this. Are you, I mean, glad maybe is too strong, but this is why we preach the Bible at Christ Community and why we preach books of the Bible at Christ Community. I didn't wake up this morning and go, you know what I want to do? <laughs> and you didn't either. <laughs> but I have the microphone. <laughs> and you see how important this is, right? It's why the Apostle Paul includes it, and it's why we have to do this here in this moment, Right? This has a huge impact on the life of a community, which is why he speaks in, Paul speaks in, with such strong warning in these passages. Notice the middle of verse 3. Let's look back here. Notice the middle of verse 3. He says, all of this must not even be named among you. 
Which, it's, it doesn't mean we're, we're not breaking that command by talking about it in this space, right? It's like, okay, not only should we not do these behaviors, but we shouldn't tempt ourselves toward it. We shouldn't take steps down that path. We shouldn't, it shouldn't even be, there shouldn't be a hint of this among you. Not even a hint of this approach to our desire for sex. There has to be something else. It has to be that loved people love people more than their desires. And maybe you've been sitting here, you've seen what's highlighted on the screen. Maybe you're wondering, why is Paul harping so much on sex? Why haven't I directly addressed some of what else Paul names in this passage, right? He talks about covetousness, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking, idolatry, and certainly all of these behaviors would deserve some specific airtime. But look closely with me at the passage. Paul starts with the broad category of sexual immorality in verse 3. And then did you notice? He circles back to it at the end of verse 5. He bookends these verses with sexual immorality. Which to me, I think there's nuances with all of these. But I think what he's getting at is sexual covetousness, sexual filthiness, sexual foolish talk, sexual crude joking, and ultimately idolatry of sex that leads to the sexual brokenness we see in a culture like ours. And that, that resonates with me, right? That we have, we have so idolized, we have committed idolatry with sex. And it has raised to such a place of prominence and centrality it, it doesn't, it, it's not built for that. It's not designed for that. Sex is a great gift. It's a terrible God. Sex is a great gift. It is a terrible God. And in so many ways in our cultural moment, and I think in the first century Roman cultural moment, it had become a God. And friends, this is not the way. But thanks be to God, there is a better way. You see, God designed sex and marriage as a gift to show us how we are His beloved, to tell us the story of God's romance with His people, which this comes out more at the end of Ephesians chapter 5, so we're going to get there next week. It's kind of a two-parter. You've got to come back for marriage next week, but don't miss it, right? Marriage and sex within marriage is meant to be a reenactment of God's love for us, and we know this, right? God is committed to His people. God doesn't exploit, God doesn't take, God isn't into one-night stands, God doesn't want multiple partners, God wants His bride. And church, we are His bride. And when we mistreat God's gift of sex, then we tell a lie about God's love. How could we? How could we, the beloved bride of God, tell lies about our husband? This is the seriousness with which Paul is getting at. Sex is meant to be a good and beautiful thing. It's meant to tell God's story, to build intimacy and joy and commitment into a marriage, a place where we get to reenact that we are fully seen, fully known, fully desired, fully committed to, and fully loved. A marriage where we get to be one another's beloved just as we are God's beloved. And so we have to do something different here. We have to push against our strong desires, and fight to take the pathway towards our deep desires. We have to be a community where loved people love people more than their desires. Now, maybe you've been sitting here thinking, Paul, who do you think you are? It's none of your business what I do in private when no one is looking. Or maybe you're not thinking that, but maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, It's just better to keep your struggles in this arena, in this area, hidden, in the dark, never to see the light of day, which is why where Paul goes next in this passaging is so interesting. Loved people love people more than their desires, but also more than their privacy. 
privacy. Loves people, love people more than their privacy. We've got a bit of a love affair going on in our cultural moment with privacy, don't we? And on the one hand, I totally get it, right? Multi-billion dollar tech companies, Amazon, they have a vested interest in my lack of privacy, right? They have a vested interest in my lack of privacy. These companies would like to know everything about me, thank you very much. And with that lack of privacy, they will be all the more effective in increasing my purchases and their bottom lines, which isn't great. So please know that I'm, this is not the kind of privacy that I'm talking about, right? That's not, in fact, what I've got in mind is what the Apostle Paul talks about starting in verse 8. So jump down there with me. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And please try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Church, you have to hear the good news in these verses, right? We are, who are we as God's beloved? We are children of light. Our parents are the sun and the moon. So therefore, because of who we are, we can't help but shine because it's who we are as God's beloved. We are to be a community of light, not of darkness. And don't miss the command from Paul in these verses. What are we supposed to do? We are supposed to walk as children of light. Walk as children of light. And this is not the first time in Ephesians 5 that Paul has told us to get off of our chairs and start walking. In verse 1 and 2, what does he say? Walk in love. Walk in love. And as we are on this journey of love, do you know how else we need to walk? We need to walk in light, not darkness. As we walk in love, we we love God and others more than our desires, more than our strong desires. But we also, as we need to love God, we need to love God and others more than our privacy too. If we want to walk in love, then we need to walk in the light. Walk in the light. Love God more than we love our privacy. In his excellent book, A Contrarian's Guide to Knowing God, pastor and, Larry Osborne, pastor and author Larry Osborne speaks into this while advocating for a concept that he calls glasshouse living. He writes, Unfortunately, our culture's love affair with privacy has elevated it to the status of a divine right. The result is that we now have large islands of secrecy and anonymity where we used to have transparency. It's supposedly no one's business what I watch or download in the privacy of my home. Child psychologists tell me that my children's rooms are off limits. Lawyers tell me that I can pay for my kids' college tuition, but I have no right to access their grades or medical records. But the Bible knows no such right to privacy, especially, this is it, especially when it's used as a cloak to hide things that we'd never do if others were watching. In fact, the Bible promises the opposite. The Bible promises a coming day when everything will be brought to light, scrutinized, and judged. Glasshouse Living recognizes that any privacy that I may have is now only temporary, that our closets will one day be opened wide. So why not let people go ahead and pink in now? Glasshouse Living. And listen, I know how vulnerable it feels to think about doing this. I try to live my life in this way, so I know how vulnerable it feels to actually try to live this way. But we can't forget. Do we trick ourselves into forgetting that God already knows? Do you ever find yourself doing that? Like, I'm the only one that knows this. Come on. No. God already knows. And here's the good news. Are you ready for the gospel of it all? The good news of it all is God already knows 
and you are still safe in his love. So a beloved child of God has nothing to hide because God already knows and you are still safe in his love because of Jesus, which that approach, right, can actually begin to free us from the shame. I know well the shame, and the shame is what keeps me and maybe what keeps you running back to those dark places in the first place, but we must not. We must, as we walk in love, also walk in the light, and so church, let me ask, who will you trust enough to let a little light in? Who will you trust enough to let a little light shine in? Because loved people love people more than their privacy, more than the darkness. Because we are children of light and we walk in light. And here's our final idea as we wrap up this morning. Loved people love people more than their desires, more than their promise, privacy, and they love people enough to build a better community. We are God's beloved, which means we flow out of that and we love others enough to build a better community. Jump down to what Paul says at the end of this passage, starting in verse 15. Look carefully then, and here's the third walk, in wisdom. Look carefully then how you walk, walk in love, walk in light, and walk as not unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And this verse is so key here. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. And that's normally what we think is really key. Oh, this is like the place where the Bible tells us to not get drunk. And sure, that's important. But the the rest of this verse, right? Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But instead, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And at first glance, this conclusion to the passage is he tucks in all of these ideas about singing, and he talks about making melody. It's like, what's going on here? How does this tie in with everything else that he has just said before in Ephesians 5? But actually, the flow of this passage is quite beautiful, especially once we remember that this passage is ultimately about the health of our united spiritual family. Overall, Ephesians 5, 1 through 21 is not a passage for individual followers of Jesus. It applies there and it helps us there, but this is a passage about who we are as a community, about who we are as a spiritual family. And author and scholar Timothy Gombas, I mentioned him last Sunday, he's again very helpful on this point. With these verses specifically, he writes, Paul has the entire church in mind here, and he is contrasting two sorts of community performances. The church is not to act like their surrounding communities in Asia Minor, getting drunk and behaving foolishly when they gather in contrast to being just another worldly community that pursues ungodly behaviors, the church is to be filled with the Spirit, that's Ephesians 5.18, with the presence of God, a reality that will become manifest through community habits and practices. So at the end of Ephesians 5.1-21, through 21, Paul is contrasting two different ways of gathering as a community. Instead of being controlled by wine, we should be controlled by God's presence. Instead of filthy talk when we gather, we should encourage one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Instead of lust or covetousness that will run rampant in a community and burn it down, we should practice gratitude and thanksgiving. Instead of taking advantage of one another and exploiting one another, we should instead practice mutual submission out of a reverence for Christ because love people, love people enough to create a better community. Love people, love people enough to create a better community. 
You know, I have another uh, memory, another relational memory. I started by talking about a time in seventh grade where I experienced a relational wounding, uh, but this other relational memory is just as vivid as that one and maybe even more so. I was younger than that, seventh grade in the first story, uh, but I was in first grade in this story, right in between how old my son Bevan as a second grader and Owen as a kindergartner are right now. So I'm a first grader uh, growing up in the Chicagoland area, and my mom had just joined the staff team at the church that I grew up in. She's got to go to the office to get some work done. She's got to bring me along. So she's sitting at her desk, and, and I bring my baseball card binder, collected baseball cards when I was growing up. And I sit quietly flipping through the plastic pages one after another, one after another. And around the corner, as I'm sitting there by my mom's desk in in the church I grew up in, around the corner comes Brandon. Brando, actually. He was the middle school youth pastor. And I'm sure Brandon was busy. I'm sure Brando was busy. Like, I've been a youth pastor. I can tell you he was busy in that moment. I'm sure he had a lot of stuff going on, but do you know what he did? He sat down on the floor Brando loves the Cubs more than anyone I've ever met. Maybe my Nana and him could have it out over that. But he sat there, and he wanted me to show him my baseball cards. And I don't even even know how long it was. It probably wasn't more than a few minutes. But that felt like an eternity for me. Because that is what being loved feels like. It feels like it never ends. 20-something years later, I remember that moment here vividly like it was happening to me yesterday. Hurt people hurt people, yeah, for sure. We've experienced that. Maybe we've even done that. But do you know what else? Loved people love people. And church, don't miss this. This should be most true here in our community. I'm not saying that there aren't other communities that that love one another, But this should be most true here because in the church we understand. We understand how bad off we were. We understand how incredible it is that God loves us as individuals and loves our community in spite of us. What did Paul say? We are God's beloved. And we know how remarkable that is because we know how bad we've blown it. And if that's who we are, then what do we need to be and do? Loved people love people. If it's true, then we are free to love God and love others. So let's get to it. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for the example of Brandon, who took time out of his day to slow down and get on my level and to communicate to me that I was God's beloved. I know that he was able to do that because he knew deep in his bones, that he was also God's beloved and that we together then and we together now are God's beloved. Lord, knowing that we are beloved in you, that we are your children by way of our true older brother Jesus, it's what frees us to be more than our desires and to pursue more than our desires. It's what frees us to walk in light and not in darkness and it's what frees us and compels us to build a better community. So please, God, Father, do that here. You are doing that here, and we praise you for it, and we ask you that it would would only continue and never cease, and that you would do so by way of our own grace-empowered efforts and by the way of the Spirit who dwells inside each one of us and who dwells inside this community here. So thank you for your Spirit. 
Thank you for Jesus. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. Amen. As we prepare to go into our time of communion, we have been going through some of the new city catechism questions just to help us prepare our hearts to be grounded in truth as we prepare to come to the table. So we have question six and seven we're doing together today. I'll do the leader portion and then together we will um, reply. How can we glorify God? We glorify God by loving, loving him. him, trusting him, and by obeying his will, commands, and law. What does the law of God require? Personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience that we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. What God forbids should never be done, and what God commands should always be done. This is only possible by the blood of Jesus. We are not perfect. Um, no matter what your yesterday was like, today is a new day, and his mercies are new every morning. Um, we're here to talk and pray. If you uh, would like to, we would love to with you. Um, but part of coming to the table every week is remembering that, that his mercies are new every day. Um, so here at Christ Community, if you are a follower of Christ, this table's for you no matter what your yesterday was. So we have four stations set up, two at the front and two at the back corners. You will come together in groups of five to seven because this is a family meal and we come to the table together at the direction of your servers, you'll take the gluten-free bread, dip it in the juice, and then take it together. So the two front communion stations are for these side sections. Um, you'll line up against the walls and then file up to the tables and then center group. You can go to whichever one is closest to you. So feel free to take a moment, um, prepare your hearts, and come to the table as you're ready.